0: Welcome to the OA Light a Candle meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Nancy. <coughs> My name is Nancy Beecham, and I am a compulsive overeater and a (laughs) hundred-pounder. Before I start this meeting, what I would like to do is a few things. I would like to pass around this little small bucket of pennies and ask each of you to take one. And when you leave here tonight at some appropriate time, I hope that you'll let it down on the ground. The reason being that I always want to remember there's somebody worse off than I. Because a very big part of what got me here was my being a very big victim and thinking I was the only one that hurt. So I'd like to share these pennies with you. The second thing I'd like to get out of the way is tomorrow is a day called Mother's Day. And I've been astonished at some of the meetings the day before Christmas, the day before Thanksgiving. This is Overeaters Anonymous. The darn stuff almost killed me, and they don't talk about it, you know. Mother's Day. I have two lovely daughters from whom I do not expect to hear from. In fact, ten years ago, I had very serious surgery, And neither of them showed up. However, because I walked into my very first meeting of Over Anonymous on June 28, 1976, that has given me 37 years and 10 months to learn the principles and the steps of recovery and to learn how to react and to grow up and be a big girl. And so what I'm going to do right now, I understand that many people who are new, if you're doing what I did when I was new, I took a lot of notes. And especially I called every speaker because I didn't even know what a program was. So I would call the speakers and the people that had a lot of weight loss, people like I who came in at 300 pounds, and I'd say to them, well, what do you do every day? You know and then I kind of composited a program out of the things that they and I discovered later the program wasn't something that I caught up with at six o'clock at night kind of what I did when I jumped right out of bed and hopped on those knees kind of and I was the kind that absolutely had to put the slippers under the bed because I'm Jewish I wasn't going to get on my knees you know always always a reason always an excuse to be different you know and I want to share with you that the greatest thing is for those of you that have paper and pencil, and I'm going to repeat this, and I'm going to try to tell you something that I learned about recovery. None of you know what I'm thinking unless I tell you. None of you know that I hurt. None of you know that I'm in trouble unless I pick up that 1,000-pound phone. And sometimes it's very hard to do. But it kind of is hard for me on these holidays. So what I'm going to do is give you my phone number, and I'm going to ask, if any of you tomorrow have a moment or maybe a mom that you're a little aggravated with and you're still blaming or maybe you don't have a mom at all or maybe you just want to do a good deed and maybe your sponsor tells you to call four people a day call me i like to have my phone ring off the hook because it'll make me feel good you know on a day like that when my own kids don't call you know so my number is 310-745-6684 right in Playa Vista near Marina Del Rey and I want to tell you that's for me how you work this program of recovery. We get up here and we say what we need and we keep it in the present and I am so grateful that I have done this before and my phone did ring and I hope it goes tomorrow. So with that in mind I would like to take a moment and I would like to thank two gentlemen. One's name is Bill W. Another is Dr. Bob, his cohort. And I'd like to thank them and all the people who believe in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous who have trudged the way for Overeaters Anonymous. And I'd like to thank a portly short little woman named Roseanne S. who in those days when she was portly and short with those two babies who somehow found herself at a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous, and how that woman had the balls I just do not know to this day, even knowing her as well as I do. Our founder walked up to Jim Willis at this Gamblers meeting, tapped him on the shoulder, now you have to understand, he's up here, she's down here, and she turned him around and she said, can you do something for people like me, the fatties like me? And that's how we began. And so to Roseanne and to Bill and to Bob, I just don't ever want to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where they're not acknowledged and I don't thank them and remember how many people it took. And to those alcoholics who really got out there with those trenches and dug out that dirt. Because you see, I couldn't do anything but go behind them for a long, long time. I had no self-worth. I had no dignity. I had no kindness. I had nothing but anger and rage and hurt and pain. So for me, it took a long time of walking behind till I could walk along as an equal. But yet, all those old-timers that were there in those days and told me to sit down, shut up, and listen. And a few of you in this room that know that I didn't for a very long time. But that was my fear and my insanity and my craziness. And thank God... Overeaters Anonymous didn't kick me out, and I want to share with you to begin a little poem. I've brought quite a few things that Roseanne has shared with me through the years as she founded the program because she has the archives of Overeaters Anonymous, a great deal of it in her home. This is a prayer that's probably her favorite. To God as I understand God, and these were all things that were printed in Lifeline. Happy moments praise God. Difficult moments seek God. Quiet moments, worship God. Painful moments, trust God. But every moment, be thanking God. And in those very beginning moments when Overeaters Anonymous was going to take off or not, before they got it charter, before anything was written. At that time, Roseanne was rewriting the steps, and she um, got a call from some women in the San Fernando Valley who are all gone now, and Dottie Shore, and Alabama Carruthers, and all these women from AA, and they came over and they started these step studies with her. And in these step studies, they talked about something that I don't always hear, and I'd like to share them with you to begin with. They are the principles in the steps of recovery, the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, the principles that if we at some time can drop that rock and get the chain up our neck and get rid of these defects which are and add these principles. See, I think if you don't know these principles, I do not understand how you can do an inventory. If you're doing an inventory and you think that you've done the sixth and seventh step, but you don't know the principles, to me, I have to take a defect that I have and I have to ask God to get rid of it and replace it with something else. So I just like to run down this and give you a little thought. Because I always like the idea when I go to a meeting that I can come home with some knowledge. If tonight I wake up at three in the morning and that darn ding dong, where you can see how old I am, is talking to me, you know, that there's something I can do to counter. That tomorrow, you know, if I walk out and I see nothing seemingly to me but mother and daughters, of course that won't be the truth. It's just like I would drive over the hill to the San Fernando Valley to go to a meeting. And I was sure every house with those bright lights, there was a husband and wife holding hands and being loving. Certainly not somebody beating them up like I was going through, you know. And yet, I've come to find out there are many homes in which women are being abused. Many homes in which people are living together with people who are not kind to them. Same as jobs. And I found out here that I didn't have to live like that anymore. But in that truth, it was the principles that helped me a lot. So, what I try to do when I wake up is pick one of these principles and do some writing or look it up in the dictionary or call for people and say, what do you do about that principle? How do you work that in your life? But I don't know what they are. I can't do it. So the principles of recovery that are so important, as was told to Roseanne in the very beginning days of Overeaters Anonymous, are step one, to work on honesty. Step two, to work on hope and trust. Step three, on faith and commitment, and step four, to gain courage. And step five, to have integrity. Step six, to be willing, and step seven, to have humility. Step eight, self-discipline and brotherly love. Step nine, justice and compassion. Step ten, to have perseverance. And step eleven, spiritual awareness and patience. Step twelve, is service and charity. I don't know about you, but what an order that would get me through a few nights working on those things and substituting them in my life and admitting where I'm really not doing it. I think one of the most important things for me to share with you tonight is that as I went along in recovery, amazing things happened to me. But because of the sickness in my head and my inability to accept anything good and my absolute need not so much to compulsively overeat but to live in chaos, to have a life that is constantly up and down, because I think we have a disease of up and down. We have a disease that does not like us to be quiet does not like us to become. And that monkey, that excitable monkey that jumps up and down my head seems to always tell me the wrong thing. And I didn't really get to Overeaters Anonymous worrying that much about me. It was the disappointment in everybody's face. The idea that no matter what I did and how I tried, it always backfired. And I seemed to be hurting so many people. I remember the look in my father's eyes when the West L.A. police came in. And they handcuffed me and they took me to jail. And I remember by the time they got my cousin Izzy out of bed and got to the jail, they'd already transferred me to then what's called Sybil Brand downtown in those days. And it wasn't because I was a bad person. I really wasn't. I was the sick kid who was so lonely, and I hope to God that most of you will jump on the bandwagon of abstinence, that you'll jump on the bandwagon of recovery before you get as bad as I did, because there's nothing like having the police say to you, why is a fat little Jewish girl like you running around with people like this? I was helping heroin addicts roll dope across the border because I was so lonely. And I was stealing things from my grandmother's house who I loved so much to give these junkies food so they'd let me be with them because they were my friends. And you know what? A lot of bad guys look real good. And I would kind of help dress them up and and give them a little verbiage and and we'd go out and I'd I'd go to some event at school and people thought I was doing really good because if I was with you maybe they'd think I was okay. And I lived a lot of my life that way. And i got to tell you, I always thought about, you know, I was in that generation where who you married and and having those kids is what you did. And I I didn't have kids because I wanted kids. I I wanted to get Christmas cards and Santa cards and birthday cards. I wanted a guarantee that I would never be alone on holidays. Kind of backfired, didn't it? You know, because the truth is those kids got dragged through this recovery. When you took away... My bread, when you took away my ice cream, when you took away my candy... And you took away the things that I ate, you took away my arms and legs. And i got to ask you, if somebody cuts off your leg, I do not think you get up the next day at 90 days and think you know a whole lot about how to live with a prosthesis. I think you are swollen, and I think you're sore, and I think you're scared to death. And that's kind of what happened to a lot of us in those early days of recovery. We became 90-day wonders. We knew everything there was to know when we were ready to tell everybody how to work this program, and we forgot to keep listening to the people in Alcoholics Anonymous who had worked this program for so long before us. So I want to talk a little about a few things from the big book. Do you guys know that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says you must be completely abstinent? It doesn't say you must be completely sober. It says you must be completely abstinent in order to work these steps. It also says you don't have a choice. It says you can be happy, joyous, and free, or die or go insane. So often, I don't get this struggle. I don't understand why more people don't have happened to them what happened to me. Now I admit I walked into Beverly Hills High on June 28th of 1976 actually dragged in by a man who took me to my first meeting and this woman from the the, um, South Bay stood up there and she said Overeaters Anonymous did open up the doors did not open up the gates of heaven and let me in. Overeaters Anonymous opened up the gates of hell and let me out. And for me, this little girl who had done so many evil things who had an illegitimate child because she wanted so much to be loved who went on television with two, three years of recovery because they were doing a show on 12-stick programs and bragged to the world about all the things I had did going to jail and having the child this child had to go to school the next day, you know my mother had to go back to the community I had absolutely no idea of what I was doing and what I was saying it took Years. So I want to tell all of you who are in your first five years who are feeling badly, who are having a hard time, who are struggling, who think this isn't easy, bravo. Because in my book, you're doing great, you know. Because without that pain, without feeling bad, How can anything change? If things just kept going on the way it was going on in that dull numbness with which we come here, nothing would be working. So I am so excited when somebody tells me they want to eat because if they wanted to shoot heroin, it would be a little harder to help them. They want to eat. Most of us know how to deal with that. You know, no big thing. We're here because we want to eat. Not such a sin to get that compulsion back. Really not such a sin. The sad thing is when there's so many people that help you when you don't make those calls. The sad thing is when you stay on those jobs when you're so qualified for something better and you believe the fact there are no jobs. I just don't buy that. This is a chain in a network here where miracles happen. And the key to all of them for me was calling in my food. The key to all of them was tuna and string beans and grapefruit and yogurt. It was for a long time for this 100-pounder eating the same thing every day. The key to all of that when I got 20 years and 30 years was spending a lot of time in the nutritionist's office at St. John's and saying to her, do you really mean that's a portion? Can't be a portion. So small, you know, and going back again and talking to them again. And the key to recover for me came when things started to happen. You know, I got to the point about ten years ago where my life seemed pretty quiet in Los Angeles Magazine was where I had worked for many, many years. So ABC was selling it to, had sold it to Disney. We worked for Disney and they were moving to the Valley. And all kinds of changes were happening and we could either buy out or not. And then I had a chance, I had a home that I lived in that was falling apart with asbestos. The house was a mess. The heat didn't work. It was freezing all the time. There were, plugs all over the yard, big beautiful home, didn't occur to me I could sell it and move down and get something to take care of myself the rest of my life, but people in this program tapped me on the shoulder, and they sent me to people, and what happened here is I learned to trust, see those principles, they sound so trite, but the reason I read them is because they're not trite, if they begin to govern you in your first year and second year and third year and fourth year, you get to grow old with grace you know, and you get to have a little dignity. And I want to tell you that there was a time in my life if I saw any of you walking across the street tonight, say with your mom or say with a date or just a child, believe me, I would run so far away. I didn't want to shame you that you would tell them that you knew me. And it was such excitement and such dignity now that I meet the families or I stand up for girls that I sponsor who are getting married or go to their graduations and that they're so proud that I'm in their life. It is is such a reversal of roles, such an impossible dream for somebody like me to have that feeling that I can do this because if they invite me, it doesn't matter if I don't go, you know. So I think one of the things, too, that that to me becomes very, very important is that ten years ago when I had this chance... To, to move and buy this condo in this dream world place and to kind of go to work it, with, in, in politics that I loved. And, and everything was just kind of rolling in a, in a very calm, quiet manner. I decided, because I was leaving the network, our insurance was like a 90% coverage. I would use it and go to every doctor I could think of. And one of the doctors felt a little something, you know. And he said, do me a favor, humor me. Let's walk downstairs to my friend the surgeon, let him take a look. It's Friday, he's not, you know, he doesn't have patients today. And we went in there and he said, I don't like this. We went over and looked. He said, oh, it's 100% benign, nothing to it. But we ought to run you through a biopsy. Well, it turned out through a long series and a long year, I ended up with a mastectomy. And I walked through that because as a person who's lost 150 pounds, it's a very interesting looking body. And as a person who lost 150 pounds, first thing that happens to most people that lose a real lot of weight is your gallbladder goes. That's just a given. And I want to tell the youngsters out here, the people that probably if I've been abstinent 37 years, I'm sure there's many of you here who aren't 37 years old yet, you know, that I have now been abstinent longer than I have not been abstinent. You know, on this earth and that's a great thing to reach and to be able to say but I want to say to you that my life now is nothing nothing comprised of nothing that I would have dreamed of none of the things I wanted none of the things I I got to where I could have them but they weren't good for me and that's where you find out if recovery is working when you're engaged to somebody who's your dream you have to find out if it's your parents dream or your real dream When you have children who are disrespecting you, you don't have to necessarily let them in your home. You can meet them at a hotel. Because my home has become a quiet place where only people who are respectful get to come in. Only people who understand what I do. And as you get a lot of abstinence, the road narrows. Because you don't get to be, a lot of people don't want to get up at 4 or 5 in the morning and take a look at the neighbor's roses and talk to God. They think you're a little nuts. They're also scared to death you're going to ask them how they're feeling, you know. And I want to tell you that about three mornings a week you now find me not in our incoming councilman's office where I was asked to work, You don't find me at American Broadcasting Company or at Disney, but you find me on the floor, that's the miracle itself, sitting on the floor of many of the local glamour schools, sitting with kindergarten students, talking to them in reading groups about their feelings. Who would have thought? And what an amazing thing the women of these 12-step programs are beginning to do. We have had such difficulty with girls that we sponsor I hate to say it, but the negativity here becomes overwhelming at times because I love to be around people who are filled with joy of recovery. But when I talk to these children, they're very honest and they tell you the truth. And when you get a child who just knocks somebody in the head and you ask him why and you ask him to draw a picture, he'll draw you a picture of his dad upstairs drinking and his father may be coach of a big prominent team in these areas, you know, and you get to get in there and help and talk about, use your words, and talk to them about things that I certainly didn't know when I was parenting my children. But the truth is that Overeaters Anonymous has given me something, you know, to speak at a convention in another state and to talk about how you live with the man who beat you up. But yet, when he went out to get drunk, you took your two babies and went in the car looking for him because your mother wrote you letters you were lucky to have him and she didn't want you to shame her because he was a lawyer and you'd never get anybody else again. So the truth is, how do you ever, ever replace that feeling of walking away from all that and not have it come back up? Of course it comes back up. But when it comes back up now, I am prepared. I am prepared with these steps, you know. And I'm going to read you one more thing because I don't ever like to walk out of a meeting and speaking without going through the steps. And since obviously I cannot go through the steps right now, I'm going to give you the short vision that was Alcoholics Anonymous printed in their Lifeline-type bulletin. One, step one, admitting, I cannot handle it. Step two, maybe God can. Step three, I think I will let him. Four. Who am I? Five. This is who I am. <laughs> Six. I am ready to change. Seven. Help me to change. Eight. This is who I hurt. Nine. Oops. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ten. How am I doing? Eleven. What else can I do? Twelve. Program works. Only if you work it. Can't think about it. Gotta work it. And you know, I think for me that I keep going back to that doctor's opinion. I love the doctor's opinion. And I wonder how many people skip it. You know, because we're people that like to get right into the meat of the program. And that doctor's opinion when it talks about how we must abstain. I, I can't talk enough about getting that food under control. I can't tell you, there are many, many days when all hell was breaking loose and all that medical stuff was going on, or on a day when I'm making a decision, on a day when I had to tell that charming man who could give me everything in the world, you know, this just isn't going to work for me because he didn't really respect the problems. And And I came to find out there was some stuff going on that he just had no interest in addressing. And you know what? You can't have... This much of your life invested in program with somebody that's playing games with it. Also, when somebody sin- when you're sitting with a group of women in a 12-step program who are trying their darndest to abstain in the restaurant,
1: some of them bringing
0: their own food, and some of them practicing weighing and measuring, because they're all in different states with different kinds of programs, and your so-called husband-to-be shows up and brings the dessert card over, There's something lacking in his judgment. (laughs) There's something a little passive-aggressive in that. And thank God that I got well enough because, you know, the girls had to confront me. They had to say, we love you and we depend on you and we need you, but we don't know if we can stay with you if you've got people like this in your life. And what a grand thing this program is when people can risk your anger to tell you the truth. That, to me, is real love. Real unconditional love and caring, you know. So for every one of you who are out there who think that you are in this hole, here is what my sponsor Jean Jaffe Smith told me. Jean told me so many years ago. I would call her all the time, you know, with these constant. The wreckage of my present was just so great all the time, <laughs> and the wreckage of my present is a good trip trick because if I keep. A different guy living in the house every time and chaos with the children and insanity at work. I don't really ever have to write about my father or mother or go back to my brother. Just so happens my brother was born blind when I was about eight and my father was, you know, almost killed in the war and they set me up on a train to say our goodbyes, you know, and and in those days the little chubby kids, they fed you, you know, and numi numi and paschetti and they thought it was really cute and I just loved it. I was like the Red Cross little baby with lots of fat and as I grew up, it was, well, he's blind, you know, and you're fat. That'll go away, you know, and guess what, you know? And the truth is that it doesn't matter to me what got me here. And sometimes I know there's a lot of trouble in the professional community for those of us who have ever worked as counselors and been involved in eating disorder hospitals, you know. I found it very difficult with people who had, they became a molestation victim or a, a, a battered wife or a... Um, they all had a bulimic and anorexic 100-pounder. But my question always to them was, are you a compulsive overeater? That's all we need to know. Because if you're a compulsive overeater, we need to be inclusive, you know, not to exclude people because they don't quite shape up. And I always get a kick out of 100-pounders when they want to start a 200-pounders. Like 100-pounders wasn't enough, you know. <laughs> and I'll tell you that, many of us who have been the size that I've been, it's very, very hard to forget. When you walk into a grammar school and the children call you Miss Nancy and sometimes there's one little boy, he just follows me around. He's always asking me why I have this little turkey thing. And um, I said to him the other day, Justin, um, let's draw some pictures. I used to be... um, twice the size of me. And let's draw what two of me would be. And they say, and before you know it, you know, all 19 of them are there trying. What? You know, they can't quite grasp this thing. And then they start asking me, they found a little white eyebrow. (laughs) I don't know how they see these things, these five and six-year-olds, you know. And so what's happened is you have toughened me up. Because there was a day when, you know, great things happened to me. I did get good jobs, but I hated them. Because I spent every minute thinking any second I was going to lose it. I did have some great guys in my life. Never could hear a word they say because I'm sure they were looking at everybody else. I probably am the only person in the world that went to hear everybody from Janice Joplin down to the Beatles when they came here in those days, you know. And never heard a word because I was so busy trying to cover up and hide myself with the black coats you know so life just passed me by even though I was right there so I am trying to hope that I can dedicate the rest of my life to these young girls in this room to be there for them to help them stop The self loathing, the inability to abstain, the inability to reach out. Maybe I can cut 10 years off of the recovery for them and they don't have to go as long as I did into those great depths that I did and pass it on. I had nothing to pass on to my children because until I got about 25 years of recovery and truly went through the Joe and Charlie workshops, I so recommend to any of you, if you have a chance at our conventions and our conferences, to sit in the workshops or to call Narcotics Anonymous and and Alcoholics Anonymous. They welcome us with joy to go to their step studies, to go to their 11th step meetings. Because if I didn't go to as many meetings of AA as I did, I would not be at this podium today. There has not been enough recovery for this girl in Overeaters Anonymous alone. There really, truly hasn't. Not to fight the illness that I had and the craziness that I was. I need to walk in a room... Where I went a couple weeks ago to a meeting where everybody in that room and there were hundreds of people had over 25 years and they each got a minute and a half to talk out in South Bay. And I brought a whole group of people from OA with me. And they all came out of there just a joy, you know, just a joy with that power and that strength because I don't know about you, but I get like whoever I'm around. So I kind of want to close out what I'm saying today by two little stories. One is about when I was uh, about five years in the program ABC had this um, oh it was like a big old picnic up in Topanga, and there's these big ranches that they use and these ranches have big barbecues and they have things for the kids and merry grounds and part of what they had on the grounds was one of those things a slide that you go down a water slide. And I decided to go down this water slide, and I'm terrified of heights, and I'm terrified of things that spin, but I went on the thing anyway. And um, I think what happens sometimes when I'm trying not to eat, and there's food all around me, I tend to do things that may be a little crazier than I might. I don't know if you can identify with that, and especially in the beginning. So... And in those days, God, are we lucky. We can go to McDonald's and get egg whites in the side salad. You know, we can go somewhere and get a a Diet Coke and iced tea. Didn't have that when I started. At Disneyland, they collected your stuff. You couldn't even bring anything with you. We were really on our own. It was tough. But when when I went on there, all of a sudden I found myself head down in the water. And I was terrified. I was just screaming and yelling but the more I scream the water's getting in my throat you know and I'm sure this was stuff was running through my head and I'm kicking and screaming and scared to death and all of a sudden I hear these two little voices picking me up and they said Miss, lady you're only in six inches of water (laughs) (laughs) and if that didn't describe my life always panic always drama always chaos always the worst but if I had not been abstaining that day, I swear to you I would have drowned because I would never have heard them because I was not calm and quiet. They were the voice of God coming through these two little children. So the entire quest for me has been a quest to the 11th step. It's been a quest to learn to sit still. It's been a quest to be self-supporting through my own contributions. It's been a quest, you know. And I'll tell you, there are days now when I sit in my condo that I can't believe I have because I never had any education, you know. And when I'm called to consult on something or called by somebody in government to be asked a question about the homeless, and I I understand... Through working service and Overeaters Anonymous, I did public information. Public information got me into a career. And when I got that career, L.A. Magazine and advertising, I read something in the big book that said be a person among persons. And my sponsor told me, give it up. You will eat, drink, and use like they want you to do. Just go ask them if you can be the receptionist. I said, what? And I was the receptionist at that magazine for 20 years, and I got the same benefits and the same people coming in and out and the same excitement, you know, but I could go to meetings and work 9 to 5. I had to be a worker among workers, which it clearly states in that book. So this is what happens when you read that book when you've got a lot of time. You start seeing the real guts and meat, you know, the real bones of what it says. And it's very simple. You must abstain in order to work the steps. You will die or go insane or be happy, joyous, or free. What is this nonsense? Happy, joyous, and free. And I suggest for all of you, and I leave you with this. When is the last time you flew a kite? What, do you have bubbles in your house? Do you have chalk? You know? Are you prepared? Do you have lots of coloring things? So if you get upset, you can just draw and be a kid. The answer to this is being that little kid we never got to be. And the other thing that I want to leave you with is don't forget to get angry. Because I used to forgive people before I got mad at them. It was very important to take peanut butter at times and throw it against the wall and spend four days cleaning my garage wall, you know, because I was that mad and that angry or else I was going to hurt me or somebody else, you know. So the truth is to acknowledge that there it was really sucked that I had breast cancer. And I got to scream and yell for three minutes a day with a little egg timer. And that's my last thought. When people call me today and they go on and on about them, if they don't, after three minutes with my egg timer at my phone, if they don't say to me, and how are you? And even if I say to them, I wash my sheets today. You want to know what color they were? <laughs> I try to give them a few hands to get off of them, you know. But if they don't, I often will say, I'm going to give you 50 numbers of people to call. But when you're ready... To call back and get into the solution instead of the problem, I'll be there for you there, as many hours as you need. And the best thing that ever happened to me was speaking in Santa Barbara at a marathon and talking about living with a man who was beating the crap out of me, and how I would, you know, um, how I was sleeping on the railroad tracks, and the kids would come and give me um, blankets at night, and. I saw this little girl in the back of the room, a seemingly thin, pretty beautiful little girl, and she was crying. And all I could do is what I'm going to do again now is give her my number and ask her to call. And it wasn't up to me what she did or not. What you do, I can't control. My job is to keep abstaining. My job is to keep putting these principles in my life. My job is to keep myself together so if both kids show up or one of you show up, which you're going to see in my refrigerator, is a lot of broccoli and lettuce and salad and good healthy stuff. When you see me in a restaurant, you know, I'm going to be proud of what I'm doing, you know. My job is to always make sure. I can't always be there for you, but I sure can get you a number before I have to hang up so somebody else can continue the conversation. So with that in mind, I want to thank you for the honor and privilege of sharing with you tonight. we have a couple minutes? We take a question? Great. Who has a... Come on, somebody power me over with a great question. <laughs> oh, to remember to be sure that you get angry, that you acknowledge when you're mad, because sometimes we go into a and forgiveness, you because know, it hurts too much to feel bad. Well, duh. That's what we ate to begin with, <laughs> you know. And the other thing is, remember, 310... Four three nine one two nine seven. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I did was it seven four five. Yeah, that's myself. That's okay. Now you got both. <laughs> four three nine one two nine seven. That's the Any other questions? That's it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.